And then the people of Israel went back to doing evil in God's sight. They worshipped the Baal gods and Ashtoreth goddesses, the gods of Aram and Sidon and Moab, gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. They just walked off and left God, quit worshipping him. And God exploded in hot anger at Israel and sold them off to the Philistines and Ammonites, who, beginning that year, bullied and battered the people of Israel mercilessly. For 18 years, they had them under their thumb. All the people of Israel who lived east of the Jordan in the Amorite country of Gilead. Then the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to go to war against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in a bad way. The people of Israel cried out to God for help. We've sinned against you. We left our gods and worshiped the Baal gods. God answered the people of Israel. When the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, and even Amalek and Midian oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help, I saved you from them. And now you've gone off and betrayed me, worshiping other gods. I'm not saving you anymore. Go ahead, cry out for help to the gods you've chosen. Let them get you out of the mess you're in. The people of Israel said to God, We've sinned. Do to us whatever you think best, but please get us out of this. Then they cleaned house of the foreign gods and worshipped only God. And God took Israel's troubles to heart. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Amago. You all look amazing. Are you ready for story time with Mandy again? Because that's what this is. It's going to be another story time. And I just have to say, I have never been more excited than when Derek just got me a laser pointer. We are going old school today. So be prepared. No cats in the room, but we are using the laser pointer. No pen and paper needed. Um, all right. So for those of you who were here when I preached on Deborah and JL, um, we're back in Judges. Just a quick raise of hands. How many of you have ever even heard of Jephthah? All right, so we've got a few. Not a super well-known person. Um, a little background is that I, I actually taught a Bible study every week for about 12 years um, with the same group of nerds. Uh, and we spent, I think, six months in the book of Judges. So I get a little geeky because there's so much in there that once you know the context is just really profound. Um, but today we'll again have some PG-13 moments. So for anybody watching online with littles or any littles in the room, uh, just be aware that there will be a little bit of PG-13 action uh, close to the end. So if we could start with the first slide, and this is just a reminder, um, we used this the first time. This is the cycle of the judges. So basically we see Israel go through this same cycle every time a new leader is um, brought to the forefront in the book of Judges. Uh, so they'll commit sin, idolatry, most of the time. God allows them to be oppressed. He basically stops protecting them. Um, they repent and cry out, which is part of what Marche read for us today. God eventually sends a judge or a deliverer they play a lot of different types of roles. Some of them are regional. Some of them lead co uh, consecutively. I'm sorry, uh, they lead at the same time in different regions. So don't imagine that there's like one head leader over the entire set of tribes. It's a little bit more tribal than that. Um, and then they're faithful during the time of that judge. And then the cycle starts again. So we are at the beginning of the cycle. Um, and as you could tell when Marche was reading, at this point, they're just worshiping every god that they can possibly hear of. Um, and I'm sorry, one more preface. I am preaching from a perspective that most of what we see in the Old Testament is the people of Israel's understanding of who God was. So descriptive, not prescriptive. Happy to have conversations about that interpretation approach with anybody who wants, but just be aware that that's the... So when I talk, I'm not saying that God did actually feel away or, or, you know, that kind of thing. That's just how they understood it at the time. And that's kind of key to the whole message today. So they're worshiping the gods of basically every other country that surrounds them. The Ammonites and the Philistines in particular 
were listed in the, the gods that were being worshipped. Um, and those are the two countries that at this time rise up against the people of Israel, and they basically just start throttling them. Um, one of the versions says that, that for a whole year, they shattered and crushed the people of Israel. So we're not just talking about them coming in and stealing things. There, there is a, an overarching um, destruction that is being attempted on these people. We see a lot of that today, right? When two countries go to war, it's not just about like resolving a conflict. Usually it's about obliterating the enemy. And that's basically what they're doing uh, when we get here. So for 18 years, they are mostly oppressing the clans on the eastern side of the Jordan. And if we can go to the map, guys, I get to use my laser pointer. Okay, so this is the Jordan River here. I'm sorry I could not find a better map. I tried for like 20 minutes. Um, so a lot of the tribes are located on the west, but then there are these few tribes that are located over here on the east side of the river. They're considered a little more wild by those on the west. Um, later on, we'll see that they were referred to as renegades. It's similar to in Jesus' time, the northern part of Israel was so far away from the seat of power in Jerusalem in the south that it just wasn't as strict. And Jesus was able to frankly get away with a little bit more in his uh, miracles and, and teachings. Once he moved south and started doing some of the same things, that's when we see him crucified. So there is a little bit of a distinction between those two sides of the river. Um, the Ammonites, not the Philistines, but the Ammonites specifically had crossed over and they were also working on oppressing three of the, the tribes on the western side of the Jordan. That will come up later. Israel was in great distress, so they repent and they cry out. And I'm going to use the term Yahweh just to, to be specific that we're talking about the God of Israel at the time. Yahweh reminds them of all the times he has already delivered them, and they keep turning to these other gods. And so in a very kind of petty fashion, God says, go cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble, um, which just feels very petty again. <laughs> but their understanding was that part of the reason it took so long for God to raise up a deliverer was because he was letting them sit in that oppression. Um, and so their understanding was that God had basically said, you chose other gods, go to those other gods if you need deliverance. They acknowledge their sin and they make efforts to take action on their repentance by cleansing the, the area of the, because they had physical idols, they had physical places that they worshiped and, and presented offerings. So they cleanse all of that from the community and they come to God and they say, we admit it, like we've been wrong, but we're still asking you to please deliver us. So God relents and that's where we get into the story. So that's the end of chapter 10. And, and what's important here, and I'm gonna say this several times through this series, the way we understand God matters. So the way they understood God was that he was their God but he wasn't that much different than the gods that they were worshiping that had come from the nations around them. And so there's this, this need to kind of beg God or convince God to work on their behalf. That's not necessarily who God is, but that's how they understood God. And so that's how they understood what was happening in their lives and in their countries. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so the Ammonites, the oppressors, they set up in Gilead, which is this little dot here. Um, it's between Adam, which doesn't come into play, and Mitzvah, which is going to be important. Um, so the Israelites, so they, the Ammonites, sorry, I know this is awkward. The Ammonites are here, so the, the people of Gilead, who are Israelites, they are starting to amass an army in Mitzvah, hoping to just basically fight against the oppressors. Um, and the people in Gilead determine that whoever will step up to lead this army against the Ammonites will be made their leader. Okay, so um, as, as a group of people, they say, if anybody will come take charge of this army and help us defeat these people, they can lead us. Okay, 
So then we go into chapter 11, and we're introduced to Jephthah, um, who I have a soft spot for. He, he might be one of my favorite people in the, the scriptures. Um, it says that he's a son of Gilead. Now, we don't know if that's an individual person, if that's just he was a, his dad was a prominent member of the community of Gilead. We don't know necessarily like who this actual father is. But because it says he's a son of Gilead, there is some understanding that this man would have been somewhat in power, would have had some authority in the community. His mother is a prostitute. And so as they get older, his brothers basically tell him, you can't stay here. We're not going to share our inheritance with you. And they drive him away from his family, away from his home, and basically make it clear that he is not welcome to be part of, of the community at all. So he relents, and he settles up north in a non-Israelite area called Tob. And we are told that a gang of scoundrels come around and begin to follow him. So the Hebrew term literally means that these men were empty and morally worthless. It's pretty strong language. Um, the implication is that there is something about him that draws people to his leadership, but the people who are drawn to him in this instance are pillagers, um, raiders. They are committing crime in the area where they are. I imagine like an evil Aragorn and Fellowship of the Ring. Like he is a little bit wild. He's got some mystery to him and people are following him, but he is kind of that chaotic evil. That, that is truly like the picture I get because of the rejection and because of the fact that he was, he was chased away. I imagine that some of this comes out of trauma, right? Now I'm reading into it, but, but there is a sense of if I'm not welcome in my home and I'm not welcome in my community and I'm not welcome in my religion, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forge my own identity. These are the people who came around me. They help inform the identity I create, and this is who he becomes. So we don't know how long a time there is between when Jephthah is forced to leave and when um, the, the tribe is gathering their military in mitzvah. But regardless, for some reason, the leaders of Gilead decide that they want him. So they travel to Tob, and they approach him, and they ask him to command their army against the Ammonites. Now, they don't include that he would become their leader. They just ask him to come and be the commander of the army in this battle. This isn't his fight. They chased him off. Like, it's not his concern anymore. But just like they did with Yahweh, to convince him they acknowledge, we know that we did you wrong. We know that it wasn't right. Will you please come and save us anyway? And we'll make you the leader of all of our people. So they add in that second bit. He does end up coming with them. Um, and you have to imagine emotionally what might have been happening for him at this time. There would be some resentment. There, I'm imagining there would be some bitterness. Maybe a little bit of like, hmm, oh, so now you need me. Like, there, it's probably a complicated decision for him to make, but he does. He goes with them, um, and the people together formally make him their commander and leader in mitzvah in front of the army. So I don't know if it was like a coronation or, or what that would have looked like, but in some way they make it official that they are making this commitment to him. So then we get into the, the middle part of chapter 11, and the first thing that we're told Jephthah does is send a communication to the king of the Ammonites. The Philistines don't really show up in the story, even though we're told they're one of the oppressors. It focuses mostly on the Ammonites. So he sends this message to the king of the Ammonites and basically says, why are you attacking our people? Like, what is the reason that you're coming against us like this? And so the Ammonite king, and it's very lengthy, so I'm not going to subject you to the whole thing, but basically he says, when your people came out of Egypt... They stole our land, which they did. Like, we know that that's what happened. Um, give it back peaceably. It uses this word peaceably. It just means exactly what it says. Give it back peaceably, and we'll go away. But give us this section of land back. And so Jephthah's response. He recounts the exodus and all of the kings and the territories that denied Israel passage, denied Israel assistance, 
um, fought against them during the Exodus. Now, for one second, we have to take the perspective of all these other leaders. There is this group of people that were slaves coming out of Egypt, ransacking places, just setting up camp and declaring certain pieces of land theirs. They don't have the right to do so in these other leaders' eyes. Now, from the Israelites, they have this promise from God that this is the promised land and he's giving it to them. But giving it to them means taking it from other people. So we just have to recognize that there is another perspective to, to the Exodus that, that the Ammonite king is pointing out. And um, so Jephthah recounts all of the kings who refused Israel passage and fought against them. And he, then he says, Yahweh gave this army to Israel in battle, and we took that land, which was the rule of war at the time, right? You defeat a group of people, their land becomes yours. So he says, we finally were able to defeat an army. We got their land. That's the land you're talking about. But we defeated you fair and square, so it's ours. And he says, we've had this land for 300 years without dispute. You take what your God gave you. We'll keep what our God gave us. Because what we believe about God matters. And his understanding was, if your God wanted you to have it, you would. Our God won, <laughs> so we have it. What right do you have to contest that? The way he understood God mattered and how he responded here. And the king of Ammon gave no mind <laughs> to his message. Um, that, that's all we're told is that he gave it no mind. So in verse 30, Jephthah makes a vow. And this is one thing you might have heard about Jephthah. You might not have known it was him. He tells Yahweh who he hasn't worshipped for we don't know how long. He doesn't know the ways of Yahweh. He doesn't probably know the law. I mean, most of the Israelites didn't know the law very well at that time because they kept wandering off. So he, he doesn't really know the nature and character of God that's laid out in the law like we would think an Israelite would. And so he makes this vow to Yahweh. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. It was incredibly common in these ancient times for people to make this kind of bargain with the gods. I mean, we see it even when we look at, like, the Roman and Greek pantheons. There were constantly these barters between humans and gods, right? Like, we need rain, so we're going to sacrifice some virgins, or <laughs> we need crops, so we're going to sacrifice this, or Whatever it was, there was this bargaining aspect, and you see it in the Israelites too. Like, we can't say that it's not present there. And especially because he's been living amongst non-Israelite people, for Jephthah, this is a completely normal bargain to make with the deity that he is coming under. Um, if we could go to the next slide. This is a rough understanding of what a home would have looked like back in this super ancient time. And the key is that this area here would have been a courtyard for the animals. So they weren't kept in a barn or in a pasture away from the family. The house was built so that there was usually a second level where the people lived or an exterior level where the people lived. And then the center was a courtyard. This is the same even in Jesus' time when he goes to the inn and we're told that he says, bless you, in a manger. The idea is, bless you. He probably would have been in a, center, in a central court of some sort. So this is the kind of home that Jephthah likely had. And so when he's thinking something is coming out the front door, he's assuming it's going to be an animal of some sort. And he also would have assumed that Yahweh would choose what came out. Like, Yahweh's going to choose his own offering. So he makes the vow. Because the way we understand God matters. And he believes that even if he is fighting for God's people, he has to sacrifice something of his own in order for God to give him what he needs. A lot of Christians still think that way, right? A lot of us think God will not love us, provide grace, act on our behalf, act on the behalf of the suffering if we don't give something up. And to an extent, sacrifice is absolutely a part of it, but not in an exchange kind of way. Um, that makes the grace and, and generosity of God very puny. And, and so I just want to say we still struggle with this mentality today. 
but the way we understand God matters. So Jephthah goes to war, and they win. And he returns home. And if you remember the mother of Sisera and Deborah, similar to her, he has a daughter, an only child. She's heard of his victory, just like Sisera's mother was waiting to hear news of the victory. She hears of the victory. And so she gathers together some musicians, and when she sees that he's coming, she dances out to celebrate his victory. And she is the first thing that comes out of his doorway. Uh, if we could go to the next slide. Uh, there should be a picture slide. Nope, back. Um, it must not be there. Okay, um, sorry, I, I must have not dropped it into the final slide deck. I, I had found a picture of Jephthah basically like in grief um, while his daughter is dancing happily toward him. The juxtaposition I thought was very powerful because that's basically what would have happened. He almost blames her, like, look what you've done, <laughs> even though she would have had no way of knowing. And he says, I have to keep my vow. Now keep in mind, in his head, if he didn't, something much worse would have happened. Because if he didn't fulfill his vow to the divine, the divine would react. Like there would be retribution for that. And again, even though the law of Israel speaks very clearly that human and child sacrifices are an abomination to God, that he wants no part of that, it was a common practice in other lands. And they had been following other gods. And he had been living under other gods where this was not only acceptable, but was often required. And so she responds, you must do what you said you will do. But let me ask you this. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. And in that time, a woman marrying was the whole of her identity, being married and having children. She had no value or worth apart from that. So basically, she's being told, she would have been young, guys. She was a virgin. She would have been young, probably not even in her late teens, potentially. And so she's grieving the fact that not only is her life going to be cut short, but it's going to have served no meaning, no purpose. And so I couldn't find much context into this whole, like, roaming the hills thing. But basically, she's just asking for two months to, to make her peace with her friends in the wilderness. And so he allows her to do so. She returns after two months, and we're told he did to her as he had vowed. Now, there are some commentators who will try to use this one little word, and, offered as a burnt sacrifice, and they try to do some linguistic gymnastics to say that it actually could also be translated or. And so maybe by dedicating her, what he did was he offered her up to a temple where she would be a virgin for the rest of her life. I feel like in everything I have read, that's a stretch. It's an attempt by commentators to make this whole situation less gruesome than it is. I can't find a lot of reason to support that interpretation, but it's fair to let you know that it exists out there for all intents and purposes, most likely what happened was he murdered his daughter and then burned her as an offering. Because the way we know and understand God matters. It, it, it forms our responses. It, reforms our, it forms our actions. It forms our attitudes toward other people. It, it informs everything we do if we really are centering our life on this, this faith in Christ. If that's how you're living your life, then what you believe to be true about the nature and character of God very much matters. And so we're told that a tradition begins in which the young women of Israel, who are unmarried and virgins, go out every year to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah. We're not even given her name. Um, most likely, the reason they do this um, is to remind the Israelites not to sacrifice their children, not to sacrifice humans. This, this is a no-go. <laughs> and so, um, again, we're told about this tradition. I don't think it ever comes up in scripture again, 
but we are told that it does, it does start a tradition. And just as a little bit of a side note, um, on the next slide, uh, St. Ambrose of Milan from the 300 days, 300s AD cites this story as an example that it is sometimes contrary to fulfill a promise or keep an oath. And that speaks into even things today. Sometimes, and please know there's a lot more behind what I'm gonna say than I'm saying, so if you have questions, definitely let me know. Sometimes divorce is the right call. Sometimes separating from a family member is the right call. Sometimes breaking a promise is the most morally correct thing to do. Obviously, nobody here is sacrificing their children on altars of fire, but <laughs> most of us are not sacrificing children on altars of fire, but it still matters that we understand. I know in my Christian tradition, it was basically taught that any promise you made, you had to follow through no matter what. And a lot of women specifically were told, you stay with the person who's abusing you. You figure out how to submit better. You figure out how to do better. And it'll work out. And that's just one of so many other examples. I, I'm picking an easy one. But there are so many times where I understood my promise to be more important than the impact of keeping it. And so I felt like this quote just, it resonated to something. This is one of the transcendent truths we can pull from this passage, right? is that sometimes breaking a promise means that we've grown and changed, means that we've evolved, or it means that we have, have recognized that there is something destructive that's happening that requires us to pivot. I am not saying to take our word lightly. I'm not saying that it's okay to just constantly break your promises to people, but there are times that it's gonna be the right thing to do, and you have permission to do so. Um, so then we go into chapter 12, and there's a civil war, because there's not enough uh, conflict happening already for these folks. So um, the Ephraimite army, they are the West, remember, and they were one of the groups of people that the Ammonites had crossed over to the West to oppress. They get angry, and they come over to the east side of the river, and they're enraged that they weren't included in the battle. Why would you go to battle with them and not include us? There's a lot at stake. There's loot, there's land, there's um, notoriety. They missed out because they weren't asked to be part of the fight. Jephthah says, I did call you and you never answered, so we went ahead anyway. We don't have a record either way. We just know that that's the exchange. We don't have any record that Jephthah did actually reach out to Ephraim or that they didn't. So uh, Jephthah, because this is how he understands the world, calls the Gilead army back and they go to war against their brothers. Jephthah wins the victory and he says specifically that they won because the Ephraimites had called them renegades. And this is this idea that they're wild, they're unkempt, they don't follow the law, this whole idea that they don't matter as much. And so that's why we won the, the battle because God was on our side. Um, so the Gilead fighters capture the fords of the Jordan that lead to Ephraim. So not getting into all of the geography of it, but basically there were some land areas where they could cross over from one side to the other of the river. And so if anybody on the east side was asking to cross over to the west to get into Ephraim, they would ask them, the Gilead army would ask them to pronounce the word Shibboleth. Or just means a, a piece of grain. But the Ephraimites had an accent and they couldn't do the sh sound. So they pronounced it Sibboleth. And if the, anybody who was asked to say the word said it with the Ephraimite accent, they murdered them. And they killed about 42,000 Ephraimites because of this civil war. And then we're told Jephthah led all of Israel for six years. So that's our passage today. That's our story. I know it's a lot, but I wanted to reserve the sermon discussion for now so that there can be some therapeutic processing if needed. <laughs> so 
what are your thoughts? Whether you'd heard of Jephthah, hadn't heard of Jephthah, heard of the vow, the guy who sacrificed his daughter, what are your thoughts at the end of this story? Why is he my favorite person? Um, Honestly, because there is something about the abject rejection that he experienced that formed him into the person he was that I have a really soft spot for. And he lost his daughter because he didn't understand the love and generosity of God. But he didn't understand because he was excluded. And so, and I'm not saying he's not responsible for the choice, but there's just so much compassion I have for who he became that with over factors he didn't have any, any control over. And so he loses a lot and he becomes a person that he might not have, bless you, if he hadn't, if he hadn't been forced away. Maybe he would have still become the person. It just, it's so tragic to me. And, and so I do feel sad and I, I feel a lot of compassion for his character. Sympathy, yeah, and, and I feel like, like he's a much more developed person than a lot of the people we read about in scripture. Like we get a lot more understanding of how he became who he became, and I think that just pulls me into the fact that whether this is a true story or not a true story, like he is a character that I feel a lot for. Hmm. So maybe part of the reason I love him is because his path parallels the conservative Christianity that I have stepped away from. Both victims of their own understanding. I'm going to have to think about That's good. <laughs> I'm going to need to reflect on that. <laughs> yeah. He has some terrible anxiety about his conscience. Oh. Like, I thought he was more than my conscience. Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I do. So maybe I can alleviate some of that. So uh, what was shared was that it brings up some anxiety about having to be more than our context. I don't believe we are ever expected to be more than we are now. Like I I shared recently, I don't remember which sermon, we do as, as well as we can, and then when we understand better, we do better. God doesn't condemn Jephthah. There's no punishment to Jephthah for sacrificing his daughter. We don't see any kind of retribution. Um, and so I genuinely believe that the expectation from the divine for us is that we are always seeking growth and depth and maturity, but that we are not expected to act beyond what we're capable of. We're not expected to know what we don't know. In fact, we can't know what we don't know, and we can't act on what we don't know. So when I say the way we understand God matters, I'm not saying be scared because you might understand God wrong. I'm saying make sure that we're always thinking through when I think God is a certain way, do I really believe that that's true? And, and not that we have to constantly be picking apart what we believe, but just that we never solidify into something. I am very confident in what I understand about God today, which contradicts things. I was very confident about who God was 10 years ago. I was just as confident then, and I was super wrong. And 10 years from now, I hope there are things I believe today that I realize were not true. Because that's the sign of growth. And one thing we've lost in our society is the ability to say, I learned better, so I do better. It's like we want to attack people when they change their mind on something, but that should be celebrated. So please don't walk out of here with anxiety. Just walk out of here with an invitation to continue growing in who you understand God to be. That, that's, that's all. It's just an invitation to to always be pursuing the deepest truths of God, even and especially when they contradict what we think we know. Anybody else? Yeah. When you were talking about the one word that like and and or, how should we use the term? Uh, Bongo wrote an oratorio called Jephthah. And in the oratorio, it really has the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, their interpretation of it.
Thank you. Um, so Libby's sharing um, our music historian here uh, that Handel had written, an, you said it was an oratio? Oratorio. Um, called Jephthah, and that the Catholic Church at the time basically had this interpretation that an angel of the Lord came down and like said, no, you don't have to sacrifice her to put a bow on it, which is often what we do. We try to explain away the bad by glossing something over it when that's not always the case. Sometimes the healthiest thing to do is to admit how awful something is and then grow and learn from it. That last bit was me, not Libby. <laughs> uh, Renee? Yeah. No, it's, it's fair. When I say I like him, I don't mean I approve of him. <laughs> so Renee was sharing that um, in this understanding, in this, in this context of this story, what was applauded as a great leader was somebody who was willing to be loyal to their vow at no cost and slaughter whoever got in the way. And that that was considered good leadership, as opposed to Deborah, who as far as we know, never murdered anybody, and was a, a prophetess, a legislative leader, and a governmental leader, and, and yet we hear so little about her, and Jephthah, for the ethics of his time, is, is lifted up as this great leader. And that's, that there's a contradiction there that's hard to wrap our heads around. Anybody else? Yeah, and that comes up in the commentaries a lot. I just was already so long <laughs> that I didn't include it. But yeah, so there's a lot of um, parallel between this and Abraham and Isaac. And what Jacob was saying is that sometimes we forget that there might have been more lost in translation between what the Israelites understood and what God might have actually been communicating than we understand or than we know. It wasn't a download. It wasn't like they were getting texts from God laying out what he was saying. So, so yeah, there's, there, this shows up in more than one place, some of these tensions. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a theme in these stories that God will meet us where we are and that there's grace for them in between. I can't believe I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but there's a book called For the Bible Tells Me So. Who? who? Peter Enns. Um, fantastic book if you're struggling with how to understand scripture. Um, truly great, very accessible. It's not a Peter Rollins. I wouldn't do that to you, but... Um, but Peter Enns wrote this book for the Bible tells me so, and I'm summarizing one of the big points I took from him. I don't think he says this directly, but maybe he does that the, the entire length of scripture is a picture of God condescending to the understanding of the people at that time, that God in his love is willing to meet us every step of the way, exactly where we're able to understand always pulling us forward, always drawing us into depth, but God is willing to be thought of as much less than he is sometimes for the sake of us being able to grasp it and then proceed. Does that make sense? It's like if somebody doesn't understand your character, but you know they're trying, and so you're willing to let them believe some things that maybe aren't totally true for the sake of keeping that door open to continue to get to know them, and hopefully their understanding of you will change as they get to know who you really are on like a divine cosmic scale. <laughs> yeah. Peter Ends does the contrast Bible to normal people. Yeah. Somebody out there told me 
Yeah, what's the, I didn't know he, he had a podcast, I'm not surprised, but what was it called? The Bible for Normal People? Okay, so if you're interested in a podcast versus a book, I guess Peter Enns does, does a podcast as well. Thank you for sharing that. Anybody else before we move on? Thank you for traipsing, oh yeah, no, go ahead. To acknowledge it and sit with it. Right. Yeah. Um, you said Rwanda? So you were in Rwanda recently for work and you visited some of the genocide memorials and, and there is still today some of this ethnic cleansing happening that's, that's truly awful um, but that we have to sometimes be willing to sit and recognize. You guys, I'm as much a victim of compassion fatigue as anybody. My generation became overwhelmed in the 20s, or in our 20s, about the amount of suffering happening in the world. And it's very easy for me to sometimes say, I just can't, and to turn off from it. And I, I have had to become more selective in what I choose to dive into. But when you're faced with something that's happening on often a global level, we don't have the right to pretend it's not there. Now, we might not be able to fix it or do anything about it, but the very least we can do is be willing to sit in the discomfort and the agony for a minute for the sake of solidarity and the sake of understanding that that suffering was holy and completely unnecessary. And so it is important to be selective in today's 24-hour news cycle, to be selective about what you take in, but I urge you not to completely insulate yourself, whether it's people in our community experiencing homelessness or remembering what happened not that long ago in Rwanda, we have to be willing to acknowledge because that's part of why Jesus came, was to hold that suffering. And we can't hold it on our own. That's why we need prayer. That's why we need meditation. That's why we need just sitting in silence, being held by God and trusting that somewhere along the way, everything's gonna be made right and all things are gonna be made new. That's the hope we have, right? That is everything that we're placing all of our faith in and no matter how many times it looks like it's just not happening, that's why we have to return to this place, to our prayer closets, to our meditation cushions, wherever you go to sit rawly with the divine, that's why we need those places. And that is also how we learn and understand to know God better. All right, we still have communion, and so I wanna go ahead and transition. Um, if we can go to the slide with the, the three tattoos. So these are just a couple of, of the tattoos that I have. And the only reason I'm putting them up here is because for me personally, I didn't get my first tattoo until I was 27. So I don't have any like Marvin the Martian errors going on. Every one of the tattoos that I have is a reminding to me of a time and space when I know that God has moved in a way that has has changed either who I am or the direction I'm going. And so don't ever ask me about any of my tattoos unless you want a story. Um, but these are just three of, or four of the ones that, that I feel like best represent that idea that I know I need things that remind me, especially in the boring seasons and in the hard seasons, I need to remember that God has moved in ways that are, I can't dispute, that God has been with me and met with me and, and done things for me that I can't, I can't ever shake. And so 
whether it's the pinup on my leg or the watch face that set to the time and date that Cornerstone ended, these are all reminders for me of what the divine has done. And I encourage you, whether it's a one-time journaling session, a chat with a friend, um, creating art or music, whatever it is, find a way to remind yourself. This is beyond gratitude, but gratitude is a great place to start. I have a jar that I throw marbles in because I'm more of a word person. The visual is a little starker for me. And so having that jar in my living room with marbles that represent things that I am grateful that God has done as it builds throughout the year, it's a reminder to me that big or small, God is still moving. Um, so I'm going to wrap up with a total faux pas in speaking. I'm going to read a really long quote to you, but it'll also be up here. I know it's kind of tiny, but this is a contributor to Richard Rohr's um, daily meditations. And I tried to, to edit it. It's just all too good. So I'm going to read it slowly, and you can close your eyes if you want. You can read along, whatever you want to do. But I want to end with this, and then we'll move into communion. The contributor's name is Joan uh, Chittister, I believe. And she says, in the long light of human history, then, it is not belief in God that sets us apart. It is the kind of God in which we choose to believe that in the end makes all the difference. Some believe in a God of wrath, and they become wrathful with others as a result. Some believe in a God who is indifferent to the world, and when they find themselves alone, as all of us do at some time or another, they shrivel up and die inside from the indifference they feel in the world around them. Some believe in a God who makes traffic lights turn green and so become the children of magical coincidence. Some believe in a God of laws and crumble in spirit and psyche when they themselves break them or else become even more stern and demanding from others standards they themselves cannot keep. They conceive of God as the manipulator of the universe rather than its blessing maker. I have believed in all of these gods. I can tell you listening to WCIC on the way here, I heard a song that reminded me of how much shame and guilt I felt for the first 10 years as a Christian. And for the first time something went through my head, I was like, I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't awful. I didn't hurt people. I was 19 years old. I was one of the better people that I knew at the time, and I was crushed with this constant need to go to the foot of the cross and beg God to forgive me because I forgot to pray or I broke a fast. What is happening? Don't do that, guys. Don't, don't believe in that God, please. <laughs> like, meet with me. Meet with Melinda. If you still believe in that kind of God, I beg you, seek some way to move forward because that is not a way to live. Uh, next slide, I think. Yes, I have known all of these gods in my own life. They have all failed me. I have feared God and been judgmental of others. I have used God to get me through life and as a result failed to take steps to change life myself. I have been blind to the God within me and so thinking of God as far away, I have failed to make God present to others. I have allowed God to be mediated to me through images of God foreign to the very idea of God. God the puppeteer, God the potentate, God the persecutor make a mockery of the very definition of God. I have come to the conclusion, after a lifetime of looking for God, that such a divinity is a graven image of ourselves, that such a deity is not a God big enough to believe in. Indeed, it is the God in whom we choose to believe that determines the rest of life for us. In our conception of, na of the nature of God lies the kernel of the spiritual life. Made in the image of God, we grow in the image of God we make for ourselves. Last slide. Well, last slide about this. <laughs> Until I discover the God in which I believe, I will never understand another thing about my own life. If my God is a harsh judge, I will live in unquenchable guilt. If my God is holy nothingness, I will live a life of cosmic loneliness. If my God is a taunt and a bully, I will live my life impaled on the pin of a grinning giant. If my God is life and hope, 
I will live my life in fullness overflowing forever. Last thought before we head over, if we wanna to go to the next slide. Here are some ways that I am inviting you to pursue continuing to understand who God is for you. Here at Imago, we have some different things that we offer. Eat, drinks, and orthodoxy, while it's canceled this month because nobody can lead, um, is actually one of my favorite things that we do. We will use a theological idea or practice or scripture, and we just open up discussion on what we believe to be true about that thing, what we used to think was true, what maybe we don't know what we believe anymore. It's a once a month space just to kind of hash some of this out in a small group together. Our formation communities, which may be starting up as early as next year, our Sunday school classes for adults, our sermon discussions that we do during the message. These are all tools that we as a community wanna offer to make those spaces. And I'll tell you now, if you have an idea of another type of space that you would like to see, let the formation team know, let the leadership team know, let Melinda know. We are always looking for ways to create those spaces for you, for us. And then individually, I just did a dump of ideas. Um, if you wanna go to the next slide, a gratitude practice, some sort of life survey or examine, photo albums, journals, and planners that remind you of what's happened. Um, therapy, huge, spiritual direction, meditation, um, shadow work, that's the idea of facing the things you're scared to face, the things in your own soul or in your own personality that maybe you're afraid to look at, taking the time to do so in a safe space. Um, these are all ways that you can create those spaces in your own personal life and that we have tried to create those spaces here at Imago. My encouragement to you is never stop pursuing your understanding of God. Be as confident as you are about who you know God to be, but understand that you should hold that lightly because we can always find out more. And the idea that any one mind could fully comprehend God is the height of ego anyway, right? I learn something about God through each and every one of you that I encounter that I would never have if I didn't know you. So understand that we are also a source of the truth because we each carry the Imago Dei. We each carry the image of God in an utterly unique way. Don't be afraid to share that and don't ever stop looking for it in other people. May you know God, see God, and experience God all around, deep within, and in ways you cannot begin to imagine.